Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've seen some big advances in the field of pathology in the last few decades from immunohistochemistry to molecular pathology, then to digital pathology and the potential promise of AI. My guest today is Dr. Joseph Anderson, and he's been involved in each of these areas throughout his career. Not only that, he's also the host of another podcast called Digital Pathology Today. Today, we'll learn about that podcast as well as his work in molecular and digital pathology and what he thinks the future might bring. All right, here's Dr. Joseph Anderson. Let's start all the way back at the beginning for you. So as you started medical school, did you always intend to go into pathology? Oh, wow, that is going back. Um, no, absolutely not. I had no idea. I thought probably I would go into pediatrics because for, for some reason I thought I, I liked kids. Well, I, okay. I, do lo- I do love kids. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, it wasn't even on my radar. So I was thinking either pediatrics or internal medicine. And then, you know, as I went through the, the training, medical school, particularly the third and fourth years, you know, you get exposure to, you know, we have a, a pathology rotation, I believe, in the first or second year which I thought was fascinating, you know, kind of the learning the underpinnings of disease and even the the histologic basis of disease, which I thought was fascinating. But it didn't really uh, sink in or I didn't really fully appreciate what pathologists did probably until third or fourth year when I went on a pathology rotation and got to see what they did on, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so, f- so you actually spent time in the, in the pathology lab? Right, I did. I did. And really, my thinking was that because, you know, because I'm, I like a little bit of certainty, uh, you know, and kind of at the time, I thought, well, you know, really, if we can identify the scientific basis of disease, you know, at least maybe on a microscopic level, we'll have some idea of certainty, right? And, you know, that appealed to me. Little did I know that I would be entering this world that had a vast amount of subjectivity too. And that, you know, no matter what specialty you're in, medicine is very much an art as well as a science. Um, but then I really came to like microscopy, you know, looking in the microscope, making the diagnosis, you know, committing to something on paper. I really like the idea of that. And then really knowing uh, that, you know, that what we did had an impact on patient care, a very direct and a very real impact on patient care. Yeah, I've heard it said there's, I think it's like 70 to 80% of all the medical information comes from pathology. And, and it has that big of an effect on, on patient care. Right, absolutely, which I think is, is very encouraging. And, you know, for many reasons, you know, one is that what we do matters very directly. Right. And number two, I think there's so much room for growth. Because, you know, the flip side of that is 70 to 80% of medical decisions are based on pathology, but yet about 3 to 4% of healthcare spending is spent on pathology and laboratory medicine, which means, or at least to me, it makes sense that we have a lot more room to grow there in terms of the, the resources that can flow into the space. Yeah, absolutely. And I think things like the, like this current pandemic has shown that, you know, we, we, maybe we need that, uh, we need those resources. Yeah. So following your pathology residency, now you went on to do a fellowship in oncologic pathology. Why did you choose this as a subspecialty? 
Yeah, I think a, a few reasons. I think number one is, and this may reflect the state of the science, is that you know a lot of the workflows and a lot of the cases we encounter in pathology are geared towards oncology, you know, because I think there's an opportunity there, you know, to make the diagnosis. And then there's an opportunity there to add additional information. So one of the things that really appealed to me, you know, in the spirit of what we do matters, uh, I was in training in the late 90s, early 2000s. And this is, uh, at the time, the drug Herceptin, was launched, I believe, in September or October of 1999. And with that came the companion diagnostic, the uh, the IHC, as well as the FISH test. And really, uh, as a resident there, it really drove home the point that, you know, based on what we find here, you know, based on if this IHC stain is positive, three plus positive, or if the FISH results are positive, then the patient will go on to be eligible to receive this targeted therapy. Uh, so that was in the late 90s. And that was one of the first uh, targeted therapies uh, that came out along with the, uh, the CD117 uh, targeted therapy for CML. That that real and that really furthered my interest in oncologic pathology. Really, the the idea of targeted therapies and companion diagnostics, and really being able to make a difference in the lives of oncology patients. And at the time, then, as you were going into this, and you saw, you know, the beginning of the the HER two testing and that kind of stuff, did you expect that field to expand the way that it has? I guess in the heat of the moment, I really wasn't thinking about it, but I think that's that's a great point that, you know, that was the first or one of the first. Um, and then since that time, I think we're up to about 40, depending on how you count, 40 targeted therapies uh, with companion diagnostics. Uh, so I think we've had a great journey and I think there's probably a, a long way, uh, a much brighter future ahead of us. But not get the, at the time, I probably didn't really appreciate it. And then I think also, I think breast cancer was was a big focus of mine as well. And I think that that was actually one of the first forays into personalized medicine was back from the 1960s or even earlier, where uh, looking for estrogen and progesterone receptors, you know, and we've known that increased levels of estrogen receptor would confer a better prognosis, as well as making a patient more likely to respond to, to a hormonal therapy. So really we, in, you know, in pathology and lab medicine, we've been, we've been in this space for even longer than, even longer than since the uh, late nineties. You did a postdoctoral fellowship and this was in molecular diagnostics, which that actually seems like a, a natural progression from oncologic pathology. Was that kind of what you were thinking at the time or is it something else? Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of marrying the two, the uh, histologic features with the molecular features, because around that time, molecular uh, was really gaining traction. You know, so for, and we've been doing immunohistochemical markers from the 1980s and 90s, you know, starting off probably with tissue specific markers or lineage markers, you know, looking at, you know, things like the cytokeratins or S100, you know, to identify and make the diagnosis and determine the lineage of the cell type or the tumor type, uh, but then it kind of is evolving at that point forward into, you know, predictive and prognostic markers. And so, yes, I think molecular is definitely maybe the next step in the journey as we move as, and then technologies such as our ability to extract DNA and RNA uh, from paraffin. I think, yes, we're certainly evolving into uh, tissue-based molecular testing. Sure. I, it's interesting that you mentioned specifically from paraffin, because I remember the days uh, where you had to have fresh tissue for that. And 
you know, it was it was a big mess if if that got put in formalin, uh, which is a lot easier nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. That was game changing technology. I think for the longest, you know, <laughs> the things we used to do in the, in the gross lab, I, I don't know if you remember uh, freezing tissue uh, for li- in liquid nitrogen, you know, for the possibility that we may do future studies at some point, you know, or something along those lines, or we were looking at a DNA assay that could only be done out of frozen tissue. I think there was, you know, a lot of inconvenience around that, but then also a lot of uncertainty because you really couldn't correlate you know, what you were freezing, you know, with the histologic image, or even be sure that you had cancer there in the first place. So I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of tissue was lost. And, and I, so I think it's so much, you know, gaining the capability to work out a paraffin, I think is a major step forward. Absolutely. And it's allowed us to go back to cases from, you know, years ago, and go back to those and, and do molecular testing on those as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's really really opened up a whole new world. Now, I'd like to talk about you worked for a while at Genomic Health, and this was just as the oncotype testing was becoming widely used. This was, I think, the early 2000s. How did did you get involved at at Genomic Health, and what was your role there? Yeah, that was a a fantastic experience. And, you know, speaking of things coming full circle, I said... uh, you know, one of the things that really hooked me in pathology and specifically oncologic pathology was uh, testing for HER2 her in, in breast cancer. And then so um, at Genomic Health, we, we had the uh, 21 gene recurrence score assay. And a lot of the people, the founders of the company came over from Genentech and were actually people that were instrumental in developing HER2, uh, HER2 testing, as well as the uh, uh, Herceptin, the drug itself at Genentech. And so it, it, so for me, it, it, I felt right at home and it really brought things full circle. And one of the founders of of the company, I, I said, Oh, you know, I remember, I remember when, uh, when Herceptin was launched in the late nineties and it was really personal for me. So it's really nice to be here. So that was a great experience. And then the ability to work out of paraffin, I think, as we, as we mentioned, really opened up a whole new world because that's essentially what we were able to do there at genomic health is take the paraffin embedded tissue and run molecular testing. In this case, it was real time PCR, a 21 gene assay. And that was really the magic that unlocked the paraffin block, so to speak, the ability to go back in time to develop and validate tests and to test, you know, and to be able to ship paraffin blocks in envelopes across the country to to get molecular results that patients could use. Right. Now, how long from when you receive the block, then how long would it take to get the results? It would take probably about a week. I think the assay was three or four days, you know, so taking in mind the steps involved. So you would take the paraffin block, extract the RNA. uh, It would then be reverse transcribed. It would then undergo the PCR reaction uh, and then reporting. So, you know, about, about three or four days. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Oncotype DX testing, th- that was initially just for breast cancer, invasive breast cancer, right? Uh, it was. That was the first test. And then we subsequently went on to develop tests for uh, colon cancer as well as prostate cancer. Okay. Okay. And I think, and for breast DCIS as well, right? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Did you have a role in kind of the areas that that it expanded into? Did you have like a recommendation, like, oh, we should go try this area, this type of tumor as well? 
Uh, well, I think I, well, I was involved in the development of the DCIS assay, so that was kind of a natural extension uh, from the invasive assay. A lot of the genes were similar because we're looking at, at the biology of the cancer right? or the malignant potential, uh, probably more accurately talking about DCIS, right? So it's probably a lot of the same pathways, a lot of the same genes that we're interested even you know, even before the the tumor invades beyond the basement membrane, when it moves from DCIS to invasive cancer. Uh, so yeah, I was involved in the studies that we used to develop the new assay for um, the DCIS test. Uh, so for the other ones, I think you know a lot of it is, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, moving pieces. You know, one is the business case, right? Is there a market out there, you know, for sure. a product for a new product in colon cancer or prostate cancer? And I think. You know, so uh, assessing the business case, I think, is the first step. And I think in these heavily screened diseases, right, breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, the problem is that we find, you know, it's an overdiagnosis, uh, so to speak, which is maybe hard to wrap your mind around, but cases are diagnosed often very early, very small with non-aggressive tumors, right, that might not actually harm the patient. Okay. But- since we don't have any other information to go by, most most or many patients receive aggressive treatment. And so, you know, the opportunity to come up with a molecular assay to assess prognosis, how well is the patient going to do, and prediction, how well is the patient likely to respond to a given therapy, you know, I, I think is really the promise of molecular. And that's and that's what we were able to do. So I think in so there's the business case there, you know, and then secondly, is is it technologically viable? So you need to, you know, with prostate cancer, for example, we're working out of very small biopsies, right? So we've developed a way to extract RNA out of paraffin, which is a challenge, but then imagine miniaturizing it and going to a few glands or a small focus of prostate cancer. So then the question is, well, is it viable to even be able to extract RNA out of such a small sample, right? So those mm-hmm. concerns have to be addressed. And then can we find a gene set that's going to work in prostate cancer that's going to offer us information that is practical and useful or that will answer a specific question in the care of these patients? It seems like that's one of those things where the the more that we learn about it, the, the more that there is to learn. Right. Absolutely. And I think nothing, you know, so I think doing things the right way in a stepwise approach, beginning with the you know, assessing the unmet need in the marketplace, you know, moving on to a, a, you know, feasibility assessment and then validation, analytic validation is the accurate, precise and reproducible. And then finally a clinical validation. Does the test answer a clinically actionable question? Now, so far that we've talked about in your career, you've been kind of on the cutting edge of what has been the newest technologies coming from oncologic pathology, molecular diagnostics and the, the oncotype testing. So it seems to make sense that you became interested in digital pathology as well, because that's right now, that's the latest technology. So, so I'd like to know, how did, how did you become interested in digital pathology? I guess for two reasons. You know, one is we're talking about molecular. As we were working on these tests at, you know, genomic health, you know, these breast, breast assays, colon assays, prostate assays, we're looking at 21 genes or so. And using the gene expression to come up with predictive and prognostic signatures. And in order to do this, we had to look, 
either under our light microscope or on the computer screen at the tissue, right? Just to circle it and make sure we had the right, the right area of interest. But lurking in, my, in the back of my mind this entire time is there's got to be so much more information just on that H&E slide, right? The mm, tumor okay. grade, the size of the nucleus, you know, the number of nucleoli, how many mitoses there are, you know, things we've been utilizing or known have been important for almost a hundred years, you know, has got to be important. We know it's important, but then with digital pathology, you know, can we standardize this? Can we utilize computational pathology to come up with scores or algorithms or ways to assess prediction and prognosis based on the the H&E image. So that was always in the back of my mind. And I just knew, I knew at a visceral level that that was going to be the future. You know, so number one is that. And then secondly, you know, how could we enhance the workflow? You know, let's bring pathology into the 21st century. You know, I think the days of a pathologist being tied to their chair and their microscope, you know, are going to be coming to an end. We need to be able to, to work anywhere, work remotely, utilizing the latest tools. So I think that had a lot of appeal to me as well. You know, there's a regulatory aspect to working remotely and even some of the new technologies. And some of that has seemed to be uh, slow moving. What what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it is slow moving, but I, I think probably the bigger obstacle or barrier is just kind of a lack of understanding about the regulatory process, which I think has been uh, one of the focuses on our podcast, the Digital Pathology Podcast, and I've learned a lot about it, certainly. And even it was good for me to have all this experience in molecular, too, because I could it, you realize that it's kind of the same process. And really, um, once you realize that the CLIA regulation for laboratory-developed tests is applicable to light microscopy, I think a, kind of a light bulb goes off. And, and really, you kind of learn what you need to do to validate a digital pathology system. Because I think a lot of the misunderstanding is that we're waiting for FDA approval of these various instruments. And, then, and right now there's only two FDA approved uh, slide scanners, which is, you know, which may be true. I, I would say, first of all, they're FDA cleared. They're not FDA approved. So there's a distinction between a, a class two and a class three medical device, you know, but the FDA clearance is more of a permission that the FDA grants to these companies to sell and market their devices, right? It's not permission for us as pathologists to use these products, really. So then the burden then, I think for better or worse, is on us as pathologists. And then the CAP has published guidelines about how to go about validating your digital pathology system. And basically, you as the pathologist you know, are in the driver's seat or you are the arbiter of how your study should be designed. But basically what you need to do is show concordance that the results you get using your light microscope are comparable to results you would get from using your digital pathology system. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Joseph Anderson. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about LabVine before, and this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credit. And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the U.S. and the Royal College of Pathologists in the U.K. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the ConfLab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts, and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. 
And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a ComfLab expert. Dress Up Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Up Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Joseph Anderson on the People of Pathology podcast. You mentioned your podcast, Digital Pathology Today, and so I'd like to talk about that. But, you know, this isn't your first venture into podcasting. So let's get the backstory on that. Like, what was it that interested you about podcasts and how did you decide that that's something you wanted to try? Yeah, I guess just the idea of putting something out there that might be useful to somebody, you know, <laughs> whether or not anybody's listening is a different, is a whole different matter. Um, just really being able to put something out there for free that someone might uh, learn from and that. I actually learned from in the process, I think was kind of what I had in mind. And it was, and so my first podcast was called, so we've done one season of the personalized diagnostics podcast, which had 20 episodes. So we're going, looking to get back uh, with season two later this year that was focused on more molecular diagnostics. Um, and probably uh, as the field evolves, probably more specifically in liquid biopsy, right? So the ability to, for us to extract nucleic acids from patient patient plasma is you know has really fueled this whole industry of the liquid liquid biopsy and so mm -hmm. you know that that was my my first foray into podcasting and then i think what's happening is i think you know liquid biopsy and digital pathology i think are hot hot areas of focus and i think tissue based molecular is kind of getting squeezed out some somewhat. So those are kind of the two areas that I um, was keen on focusing on in podcasting. Yeah, the liquid biopsy aspect is, is very interesting, but also a little bit, you know, concerning, especially for someone like me, a, a PA, because it, it seems like you wouldn't need any, you know, you don't need tissue for that. And so then what happens to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think there there always is that fear that, you know, as as new technologies come online, that that human beings are are in danger of losing their jobs or their livelihoods. But I think what, you know what's important is that we continue to make ourselves valuable, and that you know we are we kind of rise above the level of being of being a technician. Specifically about digital pathology today, the, the podcast. Now it seems like you know with the personalized diagnostics podcast, like. I get the impression you were excited about molecular diagnostics and you wanted to tell everybody about it. Is that the same thing then with digital pathology today? Like you thought this is a very interesting field and you know, I just, I want to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of one of the underlying questions, so it kind of also stems from a personal curiosity, like what is taking so long? If there, right, if there's one question, you know, we could ask ourselves and I may be a very impatient person. Kind of the, the question burning in my mind is what, what's taking so long? This technology has been with us for nearly 20 years, right? The ability to, to scan a slide. And so I think just me being able to, you know, to interview all of these industry experts, um, both from, you know, academics as, as well as companies, you know, it's really educational for me, right? So it allows me right. to gain a, a deeper understanding, right? And, and then to share the story, 
you know, with everyone else out there. Cause I think we are in the midst of a digital transformation in pathology. I think we're right now at a very low level, uh, maybe between five and 10% adoption or five or 10% of slides out there that are being scanned. So I think there's a, a long way to go. You know, second, it kind of helped me understand the regulatory barriers, you know, really to answer that question, what is taking so long? And I've learned about this concept of regulatory science, right? Where regulation isn't necessarily a bad thing, but perhaps it's an opportunity for us as pathologists and scientists to partner with regulators to collaboratively come up with solutions. It's helped me learn about, you know, the new technology platforms. I think the the scanners and the monitors, people understand that. But what's really exciting is then that becomes a platform on which to overlay these new applications, specifically these AI-based applications that can really enhance our workflow and unlock computational pathology. So we so we can really do a better job of providing information to help doctors treat their patients. Yeah, those those newer technologies, the AI that you mentioned, that's that those things are very exciting. I do kind of the same thing with with this podcast. I use it as a tool to learn about different areas that that I might not know very much about. And I can see doing that with digital pathology. I remember a couple of years ago I went to a digital pathology conference knowing very little about the field and I was just you know, I'm walking through the exhibitor hall and, and things like that, just and just blown away by these technologies and thought, I, I need to learn about this stuff. Not only was it interesting, but I also felt like, okay, this is coming and I need to be prepared. So I think doing a podcast the way that you are, yeah, that, that's a great way to do that. I wonder though, do you find that because you're, you limited yourself to digital pathology, did that limit the discussions you could have or the guests that you could have? Or do you think do you think there's enough variety in the field? Yeah, no, I, I think quite the contrary. You know, I've heard this advice. You know, I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but focus on the few, not the many. You know, or I think find as small of a niche as possible, which I think is is counterintuitive. You know, because I think yes, on the one hand you are limiting yourself, but on the other hand, it really allows you to focus on an area and really unlock all of the nooks and crannies and all of the questions that, you know, that people are bound to have. I think it was Alan Watts, perhaps, who was a kind of a, a philosopher, a modern day philosopher in the 1960s. And he said, in fields that are practical, knowledge is very rigorous. And so I think if, which I think once you're focused in on a very practical uh, field, I think it provides uh, a much richer level uh, to explore and a much richer discussion compared to a more general field. Okay. That makes sense. And a kind of a much deeper understanding of it than too. Right. I think we talked a little bit about this already, but do you think that digital pathology will become widely used or widely adopted in the near future? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because on the one hand, I think it's inevitable and we all kind of have just this sense that it is inevitable. I mean, why wouldn't we go digital? You know, but on the other hand, it is costly and it is time consuming and maybe the workflows are not intuitive, particularly to pathologists have been, who have been doing things the old way. And then I think, you know, one, one thing that has come out of the podcast is, you know, just the comparison to pathology and radiology, which might not be entirely obvious to everybody, but in pathology, going digital 
uh, the process adds expense because you're adding more steps, right? You're taking the glass slide that you would have immediately looked at under the microscope and you're adding another step with expensive scanners and monitors and displays, you know, another day, technician time. So you're adding more steps. You're making it more expensive compared to radiology where, you know, the image, the digitized image is the true image, and printing it out on film is adding more steps. So when radiology went digital, they actually eliminated steps and potentially made it cheaper and mm-hmm. faster. You know, so I think there is kind of this barrier to overcome, but I think inevitably we're going to get there. And I think the new technologies are certainly an enabler and we can get these secondary benefits and unlock AI and computational uh, pathology. And I think also regulatory barriers are coming down or have come down amidst the uh, global health emergency, both FDA and clear regulations have come down, kind of enabling pathologists to sign out remotely in, you know, on the spot as of, I believe, March or April of last year. And it seems like those changes are likely to become permanent. Yeah, that was definitely a great thing to come out of the pandemic. You mentioned the radiology and how that's they're sort of ahead of pathology when it comes to the digital area. But I wonder though, because radiology from the start, they had a standard for the images. And it seems like for a lot of the whole slide imagers, you know, everybody's got their own proprietary technology, proprietary uh, formats and things like that. Do you think that's a hurdle in getting digital pathology widely adopted? Yeah, I think it is a huge problem, right? This idea of interoperability or image-based standards. So in radiology, they use the DICOM standard. So I think that's going to be a major hurdle to overcome. I don't see why there would be opposition to it, or I think, you know, people are going to need to come on board and say, look, you know, in order for this to go any further, we're going to need to come to a consensus as to what our image standard will be. Right. And that's something you cover quite a bit on on digital pathology today. There's been quite a few episodes with that. Right, we do. And I mean, I think, you know, the basic theme, you know, in terms that people can understand is, right, do we need an open-end system or a closed system, right? Is it going to be like Steve Jobs and Apple, you know, with proprietary uh, products and formats, or is it going to be more open source, you know, kind of where where there's agreement as as to what we're going to use? Right, right. Throughout your career so far, uh, you've been involved in the latest technologies, and we've talked about, you know, molecular diagnostics, digital pathology, things like that. Do you have an idea what you think would be next, and then how how would we prepare for whatever that is? The next thing, I don't know how glamorous or sexy this is, but I mean, I think the next thing is just going to be just a broad implementation of digital pathology. So I think we we're aware of what the tools are going to be, but I think we're not, I think we're going to be amazed at what the output is going to be, right? So now current day practice is, you know, basically making the diagnosis based on an H&E and then maybe doing a few ancillary molecular studies and then incorporating all of that information into the pathology report. But I think you know, I think AI and computational pathology is really going to really unlock our ability to provide, you know, not only that baseline level of information, but so much more rich information about how to treat, how to treat these patients. And, and then I think going back and 
archiving, you know, the millions of slides, you know, that we have, there's a, a large project at the Joint Pathology Center, which was the former AFIP, which was a large repository of, you know, the nations and even the world's experts in pathology, you know, from the 1950s. Um, you know, so that is just underway. You know, so imagine everything we're going to learn from that. You know, so I think really, I think it's not going to be a surprise in terms of the tools we use, but I think in what we're able to unleash and uncover, I think people are, I think people are going to be in for a big surprise. Well, I have to say, I, I, I've listened to, I think every episode of, of digital pathology today, I've learned so much from it. I, I appreciate the information you provide. I'm going to link to the podcast in the show notes, because I think everyone else should listen to it as well. Dr. Joseph Anderson, thank you very much for being the guest here today. My pleasure. Thank you, Dennis. Big thanks to Dr. Joseph Anderson. Now, like I said in the episode, Digital Pathology Today is a great podcast. I listen to it every week, and I've really learned a lot from both from Dr. Anderson and from the guests that he's had on the show. Right now, I've got a preview for you of my interview with Cullen Lilly. Because this is really meant for medical students, right, to be in their clinical rotations. So instead of going through gram positives, gram negatives, and you know, looking at the different diagnostic tests like you do for step one, we wanted to really try to cater this to, you know, actually what a microbiology lab does. What is important for a microbiology lab in terms of the the blood sample or the, the you know the isolate, whatever it is, what's important for that lab uh -huh. and. It's, it's definitely tough because it's, it, you know, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and all the clinical microbiologists are, you know, basically sleeping at the hospitals working on this. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely worked on the intro part of that and the molecular diagnostic part of it. And we have uh, some other collaborators working on the enteric part and the respiratory part. But, you know, it's, it's still a work in progress. And there's also some other things on the horizon, possibly an intro to microbiology, which would be kind of uh, what you could take in order to help you with medical um, or, you know, medical microbiology in general or medical coursework. So that's kind of in the works. You can hear more from Cullen Lilly in episode number 28. Throughout his career, Dr. Anderson has always had his kind of his finger on the pulse of what was coming next in pathology, and he learned about these areas and got himself involved in them. And I think there's a good lesson there. Digital and computational pathology are certainly interesting areas, and you could also talk about AI and machine learning. There are many, many resources out there to learn about these things, and I would encourage you to check them out. You never know, you might learn a new skill that you could use down the road. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode and you know someone who might want to learn a little bit more about digital pathology, please share the episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People with Pathology podcast.